Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Bithia Mary Croker, better known as B.M. Croker, was an Irish-born novelist who lived from 1848 to 1920. She was a prolific writer with over 40 novels and short story collections to her name. Croker was born in County Cork, Ireland and spent much of her life there before moving to London with her husband, a British Army officer. Her experiences living in Ireland and traveling through India and other parts of the British Empire heavily influenced her writing. Quicksands is a gripping novel that explores the consequences of a single impulsive decision. The story revolves around the life of Violet Strange, a young woman from a respectable family who finds herself drawn to the bright lights and glamour of the city. Despite her family's objections, Violet moves to London and starts working as a private detective determined to make a name for herself in a male-dominated profession. One day, while investigating a case, Violet meets a charming and wealthy man named Robert Cairn. Despite her initial misgivings, Violet finds herself falling for Robert and agrees to marry him. However, she soon discovers that Robert is not what he seems and her impulsive decision to marry him leads her down a dangerous path. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 1 The Bridge of Dreams One sultry September afternoon, some years ago, my brother Ronald and I, being tired and dusty, found a temporary resting place on the parapet of a little old bridge that spanned a sleepy stream. Through a thin silk blouse, a comforting sun beat upon my back, and I was serenely conscious of an unusual sense of happiness and well-being though I owed little to my surroundings. In all England, it would have been difficult to find a more featureless and monotonous outlook than the prospect that lay stretched before us. A series of flat, marshy fields, exhibiting here a space of willowy green and there a patch of black soil, enclosed by ragged hedges or deep, dark dikes. Occasionally a few lonely and distorted trees, or a humped-up cluster of red roofs, varied the scene which gradually faded until sky and horizon seemed to melt away into one pale blur. What a region, exclaimed Ronnie as he tossed away the stump of a cigarette. The back of beyond, the land of never, never. Never again, so far as I am concerned. Who discovered it? It was discovered by the Danes, I believe, I answered. They say it was once under the sea.
A pity it did not stay there. It's rather cheerful now, and the air is splendid, but you should see it in winter when it has a gray, weird, starving sort of look, and the face of the country is like a dead thing. Well, thank goodness, I am spared that, rejoined Ronnie. I shall be out in the nice sultry east, sunning myself among the big red boulders that are scattered round Secunderabad. And you start on Friday? Oh, Ronnie, I believe you are glad to go back. Yes, I am jolly glad, only for leaving you, old girl and in such a hole as Beak. My leave has gone like a flash, just a month at home. I must say it is a beastly shame they did not ask you to Torrington when I was there. Aunt Mina sees as little of me as possible she does not like me and is at no pains to conceal the fact. The girls and I have never what you call got on, we have nothing in common. You see, I am much younger than they are. And so much better looking, supplemented my brother. Waving aside his compliment, I continued. You know, when I first went to Torrington I was a small child and by all accounts dreadfully spoiled. Later on, in the holidays, I was too young to appear in company and was generally hustled out of sight. My goodness, but it was dull, all alone, in the old nursery. Coming down to lunch as a treat, cross-examined and snubbed by the girls and overawed by Aunt Mina she had a way of looking at me that made me feel as if I had no clothes on. My dear Eva, don't be improper. You see, I resumed now comfortably embarked on a flowing tide of talk and eager to impart my confidence to a sympathetic ear dash I can realize what a nuisance I was in those days. The house was full of grown-ups and smart people and I was just a lanky girl who slunk into lunch or was met roaming about the grounds. Then twice I brought home infection and gave most of the establishment mumps and chicken pox so you can't wonder that I was not popular. After all, I am only Aunt Mina's niece by marriage, uncle is nice to me in his cheery, vague, irresponsible way, but he has no say. Living in the nursery, I naturally heard a good deal of backstairs talk and gathered that Aunt manages everything even to evicting tenants and arranging the shoots. Oh, come. I don't think it is as bad as all that, protested Ronnie, though of course a man who marries half a million must pay some sort of interest. The family were in very deep water when potted meat came along and hauled them out. When were you last at Torrington? Two years ago this Christmas. Ronnie was about to exclaim, but I put my hand over his mouth. Do let me talk, I pleaded. I want to tell you things I can't write. It was the Christmas before last. I was in long frocks with my hair up and had just left Cheltenham. I caught a slight cold on the journey but was nevertheless in the wildest spirits, full of anticipation of the delights that awaited me now that I was officially fledged.
Yes, yes, interrupted Ronnie impatiently, that is all stale news. The evening after I arrived there was a dinner party and I happened by good luck to sit next to a charming man who was very agreeable and no doubt drew me out. A lively girl sat opposite to us, she had a loud voice and talked the most ridiculous nonsense much appreciated by Beverly, her neighbor. What is your family disease? She asked him, ours is softening of the bones. And Bev replied, our hereditary disease is gambling. Which leads, said the girl, to softening of the brain. I paused, turned to my brother and said, Did you ever hear that there was gambling in the Lingard family? There's a taste for gambling in every family, he answered evasively. Well, go on about your dinner party. What happened? I am afraid I allowed my spirits to get the better of me, for I laughed and chattered incessantly. I know I always talk too much. No doubt of that when you get the chance, corroborated my listener. I pulled crackers, put on paper caps, exchanged mottos and poetry, and in short, enjoyed myself enormously. Afterwards, when the men came into the drawing room, my dinner friend found me out at once, and at his suggestion we retired into an obscure corner in order to cement our acquaintance. All at once I began to notice that the surrounding atmosphere was chilly. I saw my cousins whispering together and I believe Clarith summoned her mother for presently Aunt Mina swooped upon us and told my companion that she had something she particularly wished to show him and in spite of his obvious reluctance she took him in charge and marched him off. A significant glance assured me that I was in deep disgrace and when people had settled down to music or bridge, I stole away to bed. Best place for you, interposed Ronnie. I was woke out of my first sleep by Clara, who came into my room, candle in hand, wearing her most venomous expression. The visit was on purpose to inform me that she was really sorry I had made such a dreadful exhibition of myself at dinner, laughing and screaming at the top of my voice, pulling crackers, sticking things in my hair, altogether behaving like a shop girl. I heard no more beyond a murmur as I covered up my head with the bedclothes. When at last I was compelled to emerge from want of air, the room was in darkness and my cousin had disappeared. As my cold was pretty bad, I was confined to my old quarters, the nursery, and there I remained for several days. Beverly, just home from Eton, used to come and sit with me and bring me the news. He informed me that Major Halliday, my charming friend, had been making tender inquiries after me, adding, I suppose you didn't happen to know that he is by way of being Clara's young man she had all but landed him. Bev befriended me, supplied me with magazines and chocolates, but when he began to make love to me that was another pair of shoes. So I should think the moon-faced idiot, commented Ronnie. Well, one afternoon he tried to kiss me 
and was actually chasing me around the table when Aunt Mina entered. She was furious. Bev fled headlong and on me she poured all the vials of her wrath. She said I was a bold, designing minx, a disgrace to the family. For once I protested and protested with fury assured her that I loathed the sight of Bev and never wished to see him again, no, nor anyone at Torrington. Naturally, I was soon squashed. Aunt was too strong for me, and the scene ended in humiliation and tears. Possibly my prolonged weeping increased my cold, which presently developed alarmingly. The local doctor, Aunt Mina's slave, was summoned. He talked gravely about pneumonia and my lungs and announced that I had a delicate chest and must on no account remain at Torrington. The place was too low and enervating so I was promptly packed off to Beak where I have been ever since. Great Scott, exclaimed Ronnie. Why, it is a sort of countrified Bastille. How on earth did Aunt Mina discover it? Quite easily, I replied. Miss Puckle was the girl's governess when I was small. I remember her well, so trim and punctual and authoritative with a trick of pulling down her belt if she was going to be disagreeable but always indulgent to me. When I was in trouble, I used to sit on her lap and just sob and sob. I wonder you don't do it now, said Ronnie. I am afraid I am a size too large. As for Beak, some years ago an old relation died and left a fine legacy and the roost between Lizzie and her uncle the professor, so they retired together and are now in what is called easy circumstances. I contribute a hundred a year. You are humbugging. Why, they ought to pay you as companion and lady help. Aunt arranged everything. She declared I could not be better off than at the roost. The doctor particularly recommended this marshy air with a dash of sea, she said, and I might continue my music and sketching with Lizzie who would finish me properly. Finish you indeed, cried Ronnie. I wonder Beak has not finished you long ago. Hello, I say, who are the riders coming down the road? Shall I put my arm round your neck and pretend I am your sweetheart and give the poor natives a fresh piece of gossip? Put your arm round my neck if you like, but all the village knows that you are my brother, my only near relation. Clarice has a cousin at the Beetle, which is our news agency. Clarice, repeated Ronnie, is that the shuffling parlor maid with the cockeye? She is a capital servant, I replied, and sees as much as three. Here come the Sodies. Who are they? Tell me quickly, urged Ronnie. Sam Sodi and his daughter. She is the only girl I know in these parts and has been my great standby. He is a rich farmer, sells cattle and horses, and lives in an old manor house the other side of Beak. Almost before I concluded, 
the Sodis were upon us, a fine, solid, upsitting pair with the same open countenances, ruddy cheeks, and blue eyes. As they halted, Tossie cried out, Hello, Eva. Fancy seeing you roosting beside the road. Yes, my brother says I have walked him off his legs. Let me introduce him to you. Mr. Lingard, Miss Sodi, and Mr. Sodi. The latter touched his cap and said in his loud, hoarse voice, Not much to see in these parts, sir. No, I have not come across anything to touch your two G's, fine weight carriers, walking over to his side as he spoke horses always attracted Ronnie. I, they are good UNS, assented the farmer and rarely bred. My girl and I have been giving them a bit of a gallop in the fields yonder now the crops are in, getting them fit for the cup hunting. I will be pleased to do a deal, sir. He added jocosely. Thanks, awfully, but I ride ten stone and I'm off to India on Friday. I should have thought you would only have had otter hunting in this part of the country. Round here there is naught but water rats, but on our side of beak there is rare fine going and two good packs within reach. During this conversation, Tossie was considering Ronnie with an air of fascinated attention. Her eyes resembled two blue glass balls, and her gaze expressed undisguised approval. Ronnie and I were the same height, that is to say, five foot eight. He was slight, well set up, and remarkably good looking. From his earliest childhood, he had been excessively particular about his personal appearance had never objected to having his hair brushed and his hands washed, and, as he stood on the road before Miss Sodi, he presented a picture of a thoroughly well-turned-out and admirably groomed young man. Tweed suit, boots, and shirt were precisely what they should be. His glossy hair was delicately scented, socks, tie, and handkerchief were all in sympathy, and yet there was nothing remarkable in his get-up. It was subdued, simple, and absolutely the right thing. What a contrast to my own countrified appearance in a homemade serge skirt, a baggy blouse, sunburnt sailor hat, and bare hands we rarely wore gloves at beak. Ronnie now turned to Tossie's horse, patted its damp neck, and looking up at the rider, said, So I hear you and my sister are great pals. She tells me you have been awfully kind to her. Not a little bit of it, it's the other way on, she protested in her loud, far-reaching contralto. Eva keeps us all alive, she plays tennis like a professional, and her singing is just a treat. Are you making a stay? No, I am off tomorrow. A little of the professor goes a long way, she suggested archly. I did not come to see him, but my sister, he answered stiffly. I, I expect you came home to look up Missy, put in Sam. There be only the two of you. Partly, and partly business, it is bad luck I can't wait on and have a shot at the partridge. I, 
and I could give you a rare day's sport. Well, maybe another time, said the farmer. Now, Tossy, these horses be too warm to be kept standing. Good day, sir, and good luck. Good day, Missy, see you soon, and he moved off. Tossy, I observed, was not disposed to follow, but inclined to linger and improve her acquaintance with Ronnie. I think your sister might have brought you up to see us, Mr. Lingard, I do, indeed, she said emphatically. We have only had a short time together, Miss Sodi, and Eva had such a lot of talking to get through, he replied with his charming smile, better luck next time. I hope so, agreed Tossie as she wrung his hand and, with obvious reluctance, followed her parent. As they departed at a walking pace, Ronnie declaimed. I saw them go, one horse was blind, the tails of both hung down behind, their shoes were on their feet. All the same, those are fine weight carriers and have lots of bone. That girl must ride thirteen stone if she weighs an ounce. I think she seemed a little sniffy because you did not take me there to pay a visit of ceremony. Oh, Ronnie, I have only had you for two days and the day we spent together in London. Well then, let's make the most of our time, he said, seating himself once more on the bridge and continued to talk of our joys and sorrows. Your joys and my sorrows, I corrected. Yes, there is something in that. I have, ten to one, the best of it. Here am I at six and twenty, on the point of getting my company, returning to a life that suits me down to the ground, strong and healthy, with lots of pals, and a fat balance at Cox's. Oh, sis, I tell you, it's jolly to be alive, and he thumped me violently on the back. This old world is a grand place. I have a feeling in my bones that in some way my name will ring through it. My subconscious, what you may call it, tells me that I am going to have a ripping career. I shall make the race of Lingard famous. I hope you will, with all my heart, I answered with enthusiasm. And I shall play the part of proud sister to the manor born. Yes, you have always been my backer, said Ronnie and no end of a brick. What happens to you in a way affects me. Your good luck will be my good luck. Perhaps this old bridge may be uncanny, for I too have my premonitions, and I believe that in some unexpected way our fortunes will be bound together. I'm afraid there's not much chance of that, said Ronnie, but who knows? Then, starting to his feet, oh, Lord, here are the professor and Lizzie coming to look for us. We can finish our jaw in the garden after our so-called dinner. Let us advance to meet them. It saves time and looks impress. Call up that dog. He is hunting water rats. Well, goodbye, old bridge. He went on, slapping the gray stone parapet as he spoke. I don't expect we shall ever meet again but I jolly well hope those visions will come true. 
Chapter 2 Beak Professor Septimus Puckle must have been considerably over 60 years of age, a burly, slouching figure, moving with a ponderous and pompous gait. He had a gray beard, two shallow little brown eyes, and a dome-shaped head covered by a soft cap. He also wore a roomy suit of creased black and white flannel and elastic side boots. In these days, Lizzie, his niece, seemed elderly to me. Possibly she may have been about 40. Her figure was remarkably pretty, and her sharp, clever face was illuminated by a pair of bright eyes which shone steadily behind a pince-nez. Perhaps her manner was somewhat abrupt and authoritative, but Lizzie was a capable and cultivated woman with a level head and warm heart. So here you are, began the professor, we have come out to look for you. Thanks awfully, replied my brother, but there's not much fear of being lost in these parts, as apparently there is only one road. Oh, we have others, several others, protested Lizzie. Where is Kipper, now looking about? We must be getting back to tea, as I have a choir practice at half past five, and she screamed Kipper. Kipper! Kipper! After a momentary delay, Kipper emerged from under the bridge a deplorable object, dripping with muddy water, and immediately proceeded to shake himself in our vicinity. Get away! Get away! shouted the professor, making a drive at him with his stick. Oh, poor boy! I interposed, he has been hunting rats and having such a happy time. Yes, that's all he thinks of, the horrid brute. I hate the sight of him, declared his master. Uncle Sepp loved him till you came, Eva, and cut him out in Kipper's affections. We had now turned homewards, that is to say, in the direction from where the dagger-like spire of Beak Church rose from the plain and were walking for a breast adapting our pace to the professor's self-conscious waddle with the humbled kipper skulking in our wake. Yes, continued Uncle Sepp in his deep, scholastic voice, I don't mind telling you, when the fellow was a pup I tolerated him, took him round the garden, suffered him to lie at my fire, and even gave him milk, and for thanks, he tore up my new slippers and several most important papers. I even forgave him that, emphasizing such generosity with a large, fat hand. But when Eva arrived, he simply turned me down, ignored my existence, never answered when I called him, no, no more than if I was a piece of furniture to be dropped by a dog makes one rather small. I am sure you could never feel that, protested Ronnie with dangerous frivolity. Well, but Uncle Sepp, Hastily interposed Lizzie, you know Eva takes Kip for long runs over the marshes, she brushes him, makes up his dinner, your friendship was merely passive. He was glad enough of it once, rejoined the injured patron, but two can play at that game. Now I never open a door for him on principle. So you have your innings, exclaimed my irrepressible brother 
And I am sure you have something else to do than wait on a cold-hearted terrier. By the way, how do you put in your time? Do you play golf? Golf? No, do I look like golf? The professor halted and leaning both hands on his stick, challenged an opinion. Well, no, admitted Ronnie. You look more like fishing lots of sitting at. I sit at my desk, my good sir, I fish for ideas. I write poetry, articles, reviews. My mind to me a kingdom is I require no outside interests. No, but what about outside exercise? Exercise, repeated the professor, the world is crazy on that subject. I was brought up to a sedentary life, even at school I never went in for games, but was always keen on brain work. For years I was lecturer and professor of classics and English literature. Now I have retired my time is my own. I am enjoying the luxury of leisure and I don't mind telling you that in my lighter mood I write plays. Plays, echoed Ronnie staring at the professor with blank incredulity. By George, do you? Yes, I have one now, a four-act comedy under consideration at the Metropolitan Theater. Just at present I am hard at work on the history of Slacklands and our local folklore. The mere mention of the subject loosened the professor's tongue and all the way home and almost without drawing breath he held forth on this topic in a full, monotonous voice and with a fierce determination that would brook no interruption. Ronnie, poor victim, was helpless, so to speak, benumbed by such an unusual experience and I could not help smiling to myself as I glanced at his face of furious boredom. Our arrival at the village of Beak put an end to the lecture. The professor could not well continue declaiming and ranting in public as was his custom in his own garden and the sight of the first cottage was the signal for our release. Beak, a dreary old village which had seen better days, consisted of one long, clean street lined with irregular red-roofed houses, some of a great age. Halfway up the thoroughfare stood the church, a notable edifice with flying buttresses surrounded by the tombstones of its dead parishioners. Facing the church was the Beetle Inn, a crooked black and white hostelry which kept the only fly in the country. Farther on, the parsonage and the roost confronted one another. The latter, a trim, red, Georgian residence, was approached by a brick path across a small enclosure at present gay with a multitude of pink and lilac flocks. Outwardly, the roost was insignificant, within both roomy and comfortable. The walls were wainscoted, the fireplaces of generous space. The doors of the principal rooms were of rich South American mahogany, and most of the furniture was quaint and old-fashioned. In former days, the roost had been the abode of taste and leisure. Now, alas! Times were sadly changed. The professor had ample leisure but no taste, 
His niece had a cultivated taste, but no leisure all her spare hours were dedicated to the parson and the parish. Undoubtedly these changes had been anticipated, for a deeply cut carving on a panel in the passage said, Altering things by turns we see become another's property. Mine now must be another's soon, I know not whose, when I am gone, an earthly house is bound to none. A glass door at the back of the hall opened upon an unexpectedly large garden, gently sloping to the sluggish river, here there were long gravel walks worn bare by the professor's pacing bordered with box and old standard roses. Here was also a notable mulberry tree, several rustic seats, and a sundial on which was inscribed, time will tell. That evening a full white moon illuminated the land, and after dinner Ronnie and I effected our escape and strolled to and fro arm in arm along the professor's pet walk, this would be our last hour together. I cannot stand that slovenly old bore, said Ronnie. Did you notice the ink on his fingers and the crumbs in his beard? I don't know which is the worst his driveling talk or his appearance. I wonder he hasn't driven you mad long ago. I've only been here two days and already my reason is tottering. Does he never stop talking? Sometimes, I replied, when he is not pleased and sulks. Is it really true that he writes plays? Yes for his own entertainment. They are never accepted. He spends lots of money on dramatic agents, typewriting, and so on, and, as a great favor, he generally reads the place to me. You long-suffering martyr. I should certainly kick at that. They are not so bad. It is his poetry that I cannot endure so sickeningly sweet, it makes me feel positively squeamish. Sometimes he brings it to meals and reads it between the courses and says, Lizzie and Eva, you must really hear this, it is delicious. What lunacy, cried Ronnie. It seems to me you would be just as well off in an asylum for idiots. By no means, I objected, the professor is as dull as a wet Sunday, but Lizzie is immensely clever, a thorough musician, speaks French like a native, and has no end of certificates. She was governess in the family of a Russian Grand Duke before she went to Torrington. Besides, I am really fond of her, I think she finds Uncle Sepp trying at times, and after he has read me a play she will say, now don't pretend you liked it, Eva speak the truth. Tell him it is just wordy rubbish. I implore you not to encourage him, as long as he writes letters and poetry for the Slacklands Post it is alright, but the place burn a hole in his pocket. He is really not a bad old boy rather simple and weak, in spite of his fierce eyebrows anyone, even a child, can lead him by flattery. I wish I saw my way to leading you out of this hole, said Ronnie, my visit has been a shocker, if they would only have you at Torrington but I suppose that as long as those girls are unmarried you will be what I may call reserved. 
I have no wish to go to Torrington, I replied. Beak may be dull, but here I don't live in fear and trembling of anyone. I wonder why Aunt Mina, who detests me, is so friendly to you? I think I can answer that, rejoined Ronnie. I am a lingered quite the family type ears and all. I am self-supporting, I have 400 a year, I have done pretty well for myself so far, and I am in a crack regiment. Also I can shoot and dance, make myself useful in a house party, and do not like my pretty sister extinguish the girls or fascinate Bev quite the contrary, so far as he is concerned, moreover, should anything happen to that long-necked young pop, I am the next heir. When I told Aunt Mina I was coming here, she was inclined to be apologetic and said she was so sorry that Torrington did not agree with you and that she had settled you at Beak solely on account of your health and education as they had found you extraordinarily young and unformed for your age. Tell me, sis, how do you put in your time when you are not doing lessons? Oh, I dust the china, practice, go for long walks with Kipper, poke around the village among my friends, and play tennis with the Sodis, who sometimes give me a mount. On wet days, I help Clarice to clean the silver, and besides all this I read a lot. I've unearthed no end of old books in a closet, some horribly musty, and printed with those long S's. I've just been devouring a fearsome tale, called Sir Lancelot Gravesits All About a Ghost in Armor. Oh bother ghosts and books, interrupted Ronnie impatiently. Have you no people of your own class around here? There are one or two big places, I answered, but the Darling Forts and the Taveras would not dream of visiting at the roost. Lizzie was only a finishing governess, and Uncle Sepp was never a real professor. He is called that hereabouts, and he likes it, and has come to believe in it himself. And have you no variety at all? Ronnie's tone was despairing. Yes, twice a year we spend a riotous fortnight in London. We stay at a Bayswater boarding house that calls itself a private hotel, which the Puckless always patronize. Lizzie and I stare into windows and compare opinions, do a little shopping and go to concerts. Sepp spends most of his time in theaters and worries managers with his plays. For some moments after this announcement, Ronnie sat beside me in dead silence, then suddenly he sprang to his feet and began to walk to and fro along the professor's well-beaten track. At last he came to a halt and said, Eva. I had no idea of all this. You always write such cheery letters even that time in London you were mum. It is thundering bad luck that I'm obliged to be off so soon. However, something has got to be done. Uncle Horace must find you a more suitable home. Look here, I have just hit on an idea. I shall suggest you're going out to India as a PG paying guest, you know lots of girls do that, and Anglo-Indians are glad enough of the coin now that everything is so expensive. 
Of course the people you go to must be top hole that is understood. Aunt Mina is a wonderful woman for references and position, and I believe you will get along famously. You can dance and sing and ride and chatter 19 to the dozen. You and I will be on the same continent, which will be a change. I shall offer to pay your passage, and I expect Aunt Mina will be so glad to be rid of you that she will give you a ripping outfit. What do you think of my idea? Oh, Ronnie, I exclaimed, it is too splendid for words. How did it enter your head? It came into my head just now as I walked up and down and saw you crouched here on the garden seat and thought of you cooped up in that gloomy old house with the sham professor, the clerical governess, and the great empty, ugly country that cuts you off from all the world and you only nineteen. Before I go to sleep this very night, I shall write Uncle Horace a letter that will make things move. I doubt if your letter will move Aunt Mina or remove me. Ronnie, wouldn't it be lovely if I could go out and keep house for you? I am such a clever manager. My dear, crazy child, if the colonel were to hear you, he would have fits. He bars married officers and dash. Is married himself, I interrupted impatiently. Well, the fact is, she married him. Away from the regiment, he fell a prey, like Samson minus his hair. She was an old maid, a squiress with a long pedigree and a large fortune. She was sick of her village and schools and of unflinching determination to see the world. She met James at a dinner party and, so to speak, nailed him. She's a rattling good sort, I must confess, entertains a lot, mothers what she calls her boys and keeps us as well as she can under her own eye. And he? is wrapped up in the regiment, its past glories, its present fitness, and its future exploits. James, as we call him, is as hard as flint and as tough as boot leather. The orderly room and parade ground are his real home. He looks black on married couples and, if possible, hurls them to the depot. If a subaltern were to adventure on matrimony, all I can say is, that I would be sorry for him and if I were to turn up with a pretty sister I expect it would be a case of a court-martial. What a narrow-minded, detestable tyrant! I exclaimed. Yes, but very civil in civil life, he plays a good game of billiards and is prominent in square dances with Borough Mims. Apart from soldiering, he is delightfully tame and will, so to speak, eat out of your hand. What is a Burra M.E.M.? I inquired. You will know soon enough when you get east of Suez. Ah, if I ever do, perhaps you will see that my presentiment will come true and that we shall be together always. No such luck rejoined Ronnie. Even if I do succeed in transplanting you, I am afraid it will be a case of so near and yet so far, though, of course, wherever you may be, I shall fly to see you. 
Now I am off to write a scorcher to Uncle Horace. It is awfully good of you, Ronnie, but I am afraid you will find you have only wasted your time and a penny stamp, I replied as I followed him into the roost. Nevertheless, in spite of my dismal forebodings, that night I lay awake for hours thinking over Ronnie's plan, and when at last I fell asleep, I dreamt of India 